Hello, comrades. Welcome to Finest Hours. I'm Braden Cromar, joined by our co-host Hayden Hansen and executive producer Skylar Williams. Hello, everyone. Guten Tag. <laughs> oh wait wrong language sorry <laughs> welcome back folks i am very excited to share today's story with you because i think it's one that everyone should know while i have to apologize for another cold war story this one is too important to not be told a peek behind the curtain we each take turns picking episodes for episode one i picked our story on gail halverson the candy bomber and i am back again with another cold war story so for that i do apologize Learn more history, Braden. <laughs> I only know 1939 to present. <laughs> Today's story is about the man who quietly saved the world from a nuclear holocaust. And if I could go on a tangent here for a second, I think a lot of times in America, especially because we control the media, we, we kind of glorify people for the wrong reasons. And a lot of the time, it's very shallow. And this is really what Finest Hours is all about, promoting people whose stories may otherwise have been unheard, but are important stories, and we should recognize these people for their accomplishments. So as I stated, in 1983, one man made a decision that saved the world from nuclear war. Today, we're talking about a Cold War story that involves the nuclear arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union, and what a nuclear war might look like between these two, should one have ever broken out. Who's the man we're talking about? The man we're talking about today is Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Force. So in order to fully understand today's story, we really need to uh, take a look back into World War II and the destruction that was caused in two cities, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, when the United States dropped the atomic bombs on these two cities. Yeah, so as Britain mentioned, Nagasaki and Hiroshima had atomic bombs dropped on them. That is the only time that a nuclear bomb has been used in warfare. That's what ended World War II and gave America the upper hand to end that war. So there was about 100,000 deaths in Hiroshima, and there were around 50,000 deaths in Nagasaki. The atomic bombs had a blast radius of about one mile, but the effects from those bombs were more widespread. Within the first day, half of the deaths happened in both of those cities, but due to nuclear radiation and all of that, there were more long-term effects that happened and eventually killed more people, leading into cancer from all the radiation. So prior to World War II, there were actually many different countries that were looking at developing nuclear fission. It wasn't very well understood, but what was understood was the amount of work and the cost that would go into it. So it was kind of abandoned by most people at the time because they knew how difficult it would be to develop a nuclear weapon. To give you an idea, the investment of the Manhattan Project had approximately 24,000 skilled workers that were involved to develop a nuclear warhead. Well, a nuclear bomb. Easy, you can gather that in a day. <laughs> the Soviet program had a solid 50 scientists and two mathematicians trying to figure out those equations that were used and needed. So the amount 
of resources that had to be poured into this to develop a single weapon was incredible. Do you do you know how long each of those projects took? I do not. Do you? I I don't know. That's why I asked. I just wanted to see. With twenty four thousand people, it took approximately thirty seven minutes, <laughs> and three, about. 36,252 pieces of scratch paper. (laughs) (laughs) And about 90,000 broken pencils. None of that is true. (laughs) These are approximate numbers. (laughs) They didn't say exact. (laughs) No, but I was just, I was just asking because it would just be interesting to see if how long it took off of the 24,000 people. Then the Russians having, what'd you say, 50 scientists and six other people? Is that what you said? Yeah, and actually several of those scientists were awarded Nobel Prizes. The USSR develops their first atomic bomb in 1953. Now that's, what is that, eight years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of question into how they were able to develop their first atomic bomb and a lot of people believe that a lot of spy work went into it there were some scientists that were on the manhattan project in the united states that did sell nuclear secrets to the soviet union and there are a number that were actually executed for doing that and there's still discussion in scholarly circles about how much information was sent over after the fall of the ussr it was evident when many documents were released that there were secrets that were sold. But the extent of it is something that we may never know. So finally, the USSR in 1953 gets their atomic bomb, and that's when the arms race between the Soviet Union and the US really begins. So both of the countries know that any bomb that's dropped on them is going to completely devastate the area. And so in order to prevent the other country from getting a leg up on you, you have to have more weapons because then you can destroy more land. And that seems like the best defense. And so both countries are racing to develop as many nuclear warheads as possible. At the same time, they're making advancements in rocket technology, and then they are able to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs. So planes are no longer needed in order to get a nuclear warhead over to the USSR or for the USSR to get a nuclear warhead uh, to the United States. They can launch it from home. They can launch it out of a submarine. They're given a lot of possibilities at this point. Can the they arms... launch it from space? At this point, no. No. Though the space race was a large part of the arms race, it was developing technology to uh, be able to transport these warheads easier and have an advantage in space. A lot of the Cold War was the both nations thinking that the best defense is a good offense and trying to develop as many nuclear warheads as possible. As long as you have more nuclear warheads than your neighbor, you can quash them or at least scare them into not using their own. And I think that's primarily what the idea was. And so the arms race reaches its peak in the 1980s. By 1983, the U.S. and the USSR have approximately 60,000 nuclear warheads between their two arsenals. And so not only do they have all of these nuclear weapons, but they've upgraded them. They have the intercontinental ballistic missiles. They've got the hydrogen bomb that they can stick on it. 
a hydrogen bomb has 10 times the blast radius of the earlier bombs that were dropped on Japan and 250 times the power. And so with 60,000 of these things, that's enough nuclear warheads to destroy the world many times over. It's absolutely incomprehensible to the human mind of how much destructive power that is. How much can you not comprehend out of that? All of it. (laughs) (laughs) At least it's 80%. At least I I can go all the way up to 59,999 nuclear warheads, but once we get to 60,000, I just (laughs) can't comprehend it. Can't comprehend it. Just a single, just a single warhead with that much more power. I mean, huge metropolitan areas can just be laid to dust in an instant. Boom. Well, yeah, they have enough nuclear warheads. I'm sure their first targets would be the bigger cities, Los Angeles, New York, all of those. But they also had enough to hit several hundred in every single state. Yeah. Yeah. How many states are there? I believe believe that that with as much confidence as I can. (laughs) I believe at the time, 49. Let's get back on track. Hold on. So there's 50 states, 60,000 nuclear warheads divided by two. That's 30,000, 50 states. How many nuclear warheads can they hit in each state? 600. Approximately. Boom. But you probably don't need 600 nukes for North Dakota, Idaho, Montana. But you definitely need 600 for Rhode Island. But this isn't just between the United States. This is all of Western Europe. This is capitalism across the globe. Yeah, so it was any... I believe that the Soviet Union was observing any country that was a part of NATO. That's correct, Hayden. Boom. So, as the arm race continues to grow, the concept of mutually assured destruction, or MAD, is adopted. MAD is a military doctrine that disincentivizes a nation from initiating a nuclear attack with another nuclear power because the doctrine assumes that the opposing power will launch on warning. Both nations would destroy each other. So basically, a lot of the Cold War is a Mexican standoff with nuclear arms. Who knew Mexico was so involved? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're usually pretty neutral, aren't they? Yes. Except in World War I when the Germans tried to send a message to Mexico saying, hey, attack America. That didn't go over well for anyone. The Brits intercepted it. Zimmerman Telegraph. So to get to back to our main story, Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the USSR, was the duty officer at the command center overseeing the USSR's early nuclear warning detection system. On September 26, 1983, as most Americans were still asleep in bed, the Soviet detection system detects a missile launch from the United States. Soviet computers run through 30 levels of security checks and confirm the attack. The Soviet military protocol required the commanding officer to confirm the attack. With the alarms blaring overhead and displays reading start, Petrov hesitates. He thinks to himself... If the United States were to attack, why would they launch a single missile? Why would they not launch hundreds? Or at least like five. (laughs) (laughs) Foreshadowed. Oh, that was a good one. 
Okay, so Petrov, he had received civilian training, so he didn't have all of the military training that some of his counterparts did. So he was the on-duty officer that was in charge that night. Had there been another officer that was on duty, they would have had totally different training. So Petrov, with his training, he was kind of more skeptical of the computers, and he wasn't as ready to immediately tell his commanding officers that a missile had been detected. So he wanted visual confirmation before confirming the attack with his command. But they're unable to get any satellite visuals on the missiles. It doesn't mean that there aren't any there, but he would rather confirm than just immediately let his superiors know that something's beeping and there appears to be a missile. So Petrov has 28 minutes before the missile is within range for radar to detect. Yeah, which radar systems obviously being used since I think even the First World War were much more reliable and trusted. He knew that if he confirms the attack and he calls up the chain, that it's going to then start an unstoppable chain of events where his commanders are just going to send 600 nukes per state towards the United States and just blow the United States away and possibly the whole world. And so he sits there and he, and he just continues to think, I don't trust this computer system. I don't trust this computer system. And in doing so, he is disobeying the Soviet protocol, which was as soon as they saw that there was a missile launch, they were supposed to call up the chain. Um, And this made him sick to his stomach because he didn't know what exactly to do. He just knew that if he didn't wait, then things were going to get bad very quickly. Yeah, like imagine the pandemonium, like putting yourself in this guy's shoes that you're in charge of this base. You're the commanding officer on board and nuclear missiles are being launched at your country. And if you don't confirm this attack, then it's quite possible that millions of your own citizens will die because you won't have time to launch a counterattack. So Petrov contacts his command and confirms that the attack is a false alarm, not knowing if he had made the correct decision after he had done so. And shortly after he reports the alarm is false, another alarm sounds, a second missile is detected, then a third, a fourth. The alarm continues. Five nuclear missiles are detected. In the base, the computers verify the launch of five missiles. The Soviet personnel scramble to investigate the system for faults, but none are found. Petrov, still not trusting the computer system, dismisses the attacks as a false alarm again. Not wanting to be the cause of World War III, he waits until the missiles are within range for the radar sensors to detect. However, by the time these missiles reach this point, it will be too late for the USSR to retaliate. Petrov is thinking to himself, even if these attacks are real, it will be less damaging to dismiss these. He's quoted saying, I fully understand that I won't be corrected. No one will dare to correct me. They will agree with me and that's it. It's always easier to agree. I am the only one responsible for it. Which is pretty amazing to like have him think about because it would be so easy in that situation to be like, oh, well, it's the scientist's fault who came up with this computer. 
And every single man and woman in that facility is confirming along with the computers that this is a legitimate attack. The computer systems are going through every single check of security. The computers cannot be wrong. This is a legit attack. You need to report this. You need to confirm this attack with headquarters. Everything was pointing to it being a legitimate attack, except for Petrov. They don't quite have a visual on the missiles, but they could still very well be there. And the whole time, this is just this is just utter chaos, alarm sounding, Petrov the whole time, staring at screen, saying start, initiate the sequence, contact command, verify the attack. The pre-established protocol already demanded it. All he has to do is pick up the phone and confirm the attack is legitimate. So the radars aren't picking up the signals of the incoming missiles. And so Petrov's decision to dismiss the alarms was the only right one. Following the incident, he is brought before his commanding officers. And although he should have been awarded a medal for his decision, he was reprimanded by his commanding officers for improperly filling out his combat journal. It had gaps in the entries because he decided to, rather than filling out the journal, he needed to be paying more attention to commanding the base. And so he didn't fill it out later either because that would have been illegally tampering with the military document. So he was made a scapegoat by his commanding officers, and he was told not to repeat this with anyone, including his own wife. And if the story were to get out, it would be an embarrassment to the Soviet military. At the time, had those missiles actually been launched, it would have been clear who was at fault for not retaliating. It would have been Stanislav Petrov. But because these missiles weren't actually launched, it was pretty clear who was at fault. It was whoever engineered the computer systems. And it's easier to punish one man than to punish all of those people that went in and created these computer systems, all of their scientists. Had Stanislav Petrov been given an award for having the best judgment in the history of history, it would have meant punishment for many others. If any word comes out that their computers are not accurate, the United States immediately has an advantage. So, had Petrov not dismissed the alarms and the Soviet military launched nuclear missiles at the United States, an estimated 250 million lives would have been lost between the United States and the Soviet Union after the first attack. Half of the United States population would have been killed instantly. The same in the USSR. So, to put this in perspective... Between 50 and 70 million lives were lost during World War II over the course of six years. There are more lives lost during World War II than all the wars since. So we're talking about a destructive power of five World War IIs within 24 hours, which, I mean, these are just numbers. We're just saying numbers, but, and it's impossible for the human mind to comprehend. And it's hard to estimate a death toll for nuclear war because it all kind of just depends on how many nuclear missiles were launched. Think about that for a minute. The entire world would have been devastated by a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Like, think about everybody that you know, and half of those people dead in a matter of days. So on that night in 1983, Stanislav Petrov had hundreds of millions of lives in his hands. So not only would there be hundreds of millions of deaths if a nuclear war to break out, but the effects that the nuclear radiation 
would have on not only people, but the environments would be immeasurable. If people hadn't died from the first blast, they would then experience the side effects that a nuclear bomb would give off. Just as the people from Nagasaki and Hiroshima were affected by by the after effects of those bombs. Because many of the missiles would be targeted at nuclear silos in rural areas, enough dust and ash would fill the atmosphere to block out the sun. The Earth, particularly the Northern Hemisphere, would be so polluted that sunlight would not be able to reach the Earth's surface, decimating agriculture and creating a nuclear famine. It's impossible to estimate how many lives would be lost due to the radiation and starvation that those bombs would cause because they would not just send one. They would have sent hundreds. Thousands of missiles would have been airborne. Now, the Cold War ended in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. The story of Stanislav Petrov and the 1983 nuclear false alarm incident would not be revealed to the public until 1998. So his story went completely unknown and unheard of for at least 15 years. Since then, all nuclear powers have worked to reduce their nuclear arsenals through disarmament programs. That's a big word, Hayden. Programs? Disarmament. And you must know what time it is, right? Oh, Skylar, what time is it? Vocabulary time. (laughs) Podcast vocabulary time. Excellent. Cromar, I need you to give me the definition of disarmament. Disarmament. So these are programs that the United States and other nuclear powers went through to reduce the number of nuclear warheads in their nuclear arsenals. So why is this a good idea? It's a good idea because, well, first of all, a lot of the equipment and the software was getting very outdated, but there's also just no need to have that much nuclear power around. So slowly they cut down their number of nuclear warheads that they have in their arsenals for the safety of their own nations. And how would they do that? Hot dang! He just stumped you. I don't, actually, I don't know what the process of nuclear disarmament is. You see, you take a bomb. You put the atoms back together. You get rid of it. You start, <laughs> you start banging on it with a hammer. <laughs> I heard that works for everything. Yes. That usually Hammers. fixes things for Hammers me. and duct tape. Okay. And duct tape. Fix it, Felix! Boing, 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 boing. This nuclear warhead was duct taped together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in 2006, Petrov was invited to the U.S. to speak to the United Nations in New York City. He gave a speech where he was quoted saying, Our world has never been closer to complete catastrophe than it was in 1983. Even the tiniest spark could have meant the destruction of our civilization. That's why we all have to remember, as long as both sides keep their nuclear arsenals, the danger of nuclear war can't be excluded. Petrov has been awarded several awards from various nations and political unions. He didn't get his award or recognition at the time, but he was sure recognized afterwards. He passed away on May 19th, 2017. Bro is awesome! He's definitely a man whose name should be up there in the ranks of recognition along with those such as Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. 
In a great video on YouTube called The Shadow Piece, you can watch a visual presentation on a nuclear war scenario and the destruction it would cause. It's a great place to learn more about the effects of nuclear war and the measures taken to help prevent it from ever happening. And we highly recommend that you go check it out. If you'd like to learn more about Stanislav Petrov and the 1983 nuclear false arm incident, you can watch The Man Who Saved the World on Amazon Prime Video. And no, that's not an endorsement, but Amazon Prime. Again, oh, we don't even, we're we don't still... even like Amazon Prime. Yes, we do. We're, so, we're accepting, <laughs> we are definitely accepting sponsorship opportunities from Amazon Prime. Oh, yes, yes. We love, we love you, Amazon. We, we love Amazon Prime. And any of you listeners, if you just want us to give you a shout out, just pay us $5. Well, I'll close us out here with a quote from Petrov himself. The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him your friend. All right, so we appreciate you guys taking the time to listen today. We hope you enjoyed the story of Stanislav Petrov. If you guys want to listen about any other person in our previous podcast, please go to Apple Podcast or Spotify. Look up Finest Hours. Give us a like. Subscribe. Rate us. Do all that good stuff. We want five stars. We want reviews. We want everything you can throw at us. Also follow our Instagram, Finest Hour Podcast. If you don't have social media, feel free to email us at finesthourspod at gmail.com. Yeah, and if you don't follow us on Instagram and we follow you, then please follow us. There's There's about 120 of you that don't that we follow, but you don't follow us. So sort yourself out, follow our podcast, and uh, you'll be able to keep up with all of our new content and see when we come out with our new shows. Yeah, come on, Chris Hemsworth. Give us a follow back. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, that's going to do it for this week. We hope tonight you sleep peacefully knowing that Stanislav Petrov saved the world. As the Russians would say, Doskorova. Doskorova. Thank you.